0: Voice of the Musical Welcome to Voice of the Musical. I'm Tim Sutton, and I have to apologise for uh, an unconscionably long delay since the last, uh, the last episode. Um, in my defence, I've been very involved with uh, being the musical director of Memphis, which closed in October of this year, 2015, um I believe that's what they call an, an Explano brag um, i'm very happy and lucky to be joined today by composer Scott Frankel, whose uh, fantastic musical Gray Gardens is about to get its british premiere
1: European premiere European well.
0: premiere at the Southwark Playhouse um, starring Jenna Russell and Sheila Hancock. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Tim. Happy to be here i'd like to ask you uh, if I may about your musical upbringing. Um, I know you were pretty precocious, um, but perhaps you could tell me about your entry into the world of music and of musical theatre.
1: Sure. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in the States, uh, a nice uh, Midwestern city with a wonderful orchestra, and uh, I was a precocious little boy pianist. Apparently I uh, exhibited some rhythmic moving in a non-autistic fashion as a three or four-year-old and my parents thought that perhaps I might have some musical ability and that got me to uh, a piano teacher and that proved to be very felicitous. And what was particularly great, uh, that piano teacher, in addition to being a great keyboard pedagogue, also instilled in all of her students a great knowledge of music theory. So we would do these things called speed drills, and she would, we would have a theory class one day a week, and everybody would run, she'd say E major, and you'd run to the chalkboard, and you'd have to, whoever finished you know, the, the four sharps first won, uh, won some sort of prize, but we, we did a lot of kind of fairly sophisticated harmonic analysis for five, six, and seven-year-olds, and as a wow. result, um, it was a kind of wonderful, so in addition to the kind of technical and interpretive skills that she taught, in terms of piano performance, there was this real underpinning of, of harmony and counterpoint. And so that was great to understand the musical architecture. And I guess maybe it was through that that uh, the kind of compositional bug got
0: instilled in me, how music was constructed, how it's how it's made up of these components. And did she allow you that sort of freedom? I mean, was she, did, did her interests go beyond the, the regular... Classical drills.
1: You know, it's interesting. She she did. Uh, the, I find I actually find through life that the 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 best people are the ones that are the most inclusive. There's a I, I'm going to mangle the quote. It's a paraphrase, but the Kurt Vile. It was the uh, there are only two kinds of music: good music and bad music. And so this the whole notion of categorizing what is popular and what is classical and what is Broadway and what is uh, American or what is British. Uh, you know, I think that she maybe started me along the road of uh there's there's good music and there's bad music and and, and what is good can encompass
0: a, a lot of idioms and you from your rhythmic moving movements at three and four do, do you consider rhythm to be a particular um obsession of yours is harmony or is it all just in the same bag i'm just sort of interested in what what sort of That's composer one becomes yes
1: i think i'm definitely a harmony man first yeah. and and a rhythm man second but i think also in the same way i'm a humanities english guy before i'm a math science guy Hmm. Uh, and they always say that musicians uh are usually have commensurate skill set in math and i do that is i'm the exception to (laughs) to that rule in spades i i love literature and and uh uh, history and and language much more than than science and math
0: um i was listening to an interview uh with you from some years back and you're talking about why one writes a song um and that element of humanity. Um, Is that one of the things that drew you to musicals in the first place?
1: Yes, I mean musicals, it's that spectacular, I mean an opera too, but that spectacular synthesis of text and feeling and music and drama and stage imagery. And when all of those things fuse together and when all cylinders are firing in in the best sort of way, I think you get this uh, incredible souffle that is much more than the components that have gone into it. Uh, sometimes it's frustrating for me to watch pieces where uh, the the skill set is more uh, uh, less global and more individual or you could have great music and a kind of mediocre stage picture or mm-hmm. great performances and mediocre material uh, but when everything's working together, you know music uh, there's a reason why there's underscore in motion pictures. I mean it's that it's that intangible ability to viscerally affect an audience uh, whether it really involuntarily I mean the ability to to instill uh, a terror uh, attention uh, empathy sadness joy uh, comedy I mean music I think is can have a counterpoint to all of that wordlessly Mm. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing and then so it both works on that level, and then, of course, then when it's fused with uh, a lyric and with text and with a performance, you can tell a story. I mean, it's really all storytelling. Yeah, all when wild geese of autumn fly will
0: you? When hearth of wind winter... first memory of musical theatre? The first Broadway show I saw was A Chorus
1: Line uh, in 75 uh, with my parents. We went to, went to New York to see it. Um, I do remember listening to original cast recordings long before the CD and digital downloads uh, growing up, so I, I certainly had that in my ear. I mean, I also uh, was able to play by ear so that was all that was an interesting uh that was an interesting grace note to the skill set to be able to hear a song on the radio I mean, I also loved popular music, so I was playing you know my six year old version of Petula Clark singing downtown <laughs> it was pretty good uh and so that becomes you know both a party trick but also uh something to cull from. I do love, you know, and that was a great, you know, I, do, I have very specific memories of Burt Bacharach and Hal David, you know, uh, uh, Promises, Promises, or uh, uh, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, or uh, I'll uh, say a little prayer for you, that that kind of, uh, that was a great time in American popular music. I also have great memories of, of Joe Beam and Sergio Mendes and kind of Brazilian-y mm-hmm. Latin sound, but, uh, there was a there was a lot of m- kind of more musically sophisticated and liter- literate mm-hmm. music on the radio, so that also caught my ear. In addition yes. to, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the Sandhan bug. Uh, I some people talk of it as it's as if it's a curse, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's like saying Mozart's a curse or Verdi's a curse. I mean, it's. Uh, he looms large, but, but thrillingly so. And, uh, you know, to discover that material mm. as a kid, I was so nerdy though. I wrote my university application essay about Sweeney Todd, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the industrial revolution. And, uh, well, that seemed to work cause I got into where I wanted to go, but, uh, yeah, it was fascinating to, to, to dive into that. And again, also, uh, the, the, I think when you see that kind of ambition where uh, the material's at a very very high level the music's at a high level, the storytelling's at a high level, the language the verbal language is extraordinary Um, that's pretty heady stuff for a
0: kid Uh, well it's interesting I first met you um, when I came to the press night of Neverland at the Leicester Curve uh, which conducted by um, Mutual friend David Charles Bell, um, and he, when I was speaking to him about you, he compared your musical abilities to to Mozart. Um, well, no pressure there. <laughs> Thank you, David Charles. Wow. I think that the theory grounding that you you, you speak of, um, you know from the from the beginning, that you, listening to your scores, you know that there's a, a, you know, a serious um, harmony and counterpoint background that's just sort of wonderful and uh, and t- t- sort of Talking personal prejudice is too rare in um, in current musical theatre. Um, do you do you share uh, Glenn Gould's opinion of Petula Clark as uh, much greater than the Beatles?
1: Uh, oh, gosh,
0: I'm I'm sitting here
1: on the South Bank answering that question on Pat, <laughs> Pat Clark's home turf. I don't. Uh, I'm going to say they're both wonderful. There you How's go. that? <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm you know the the thing about the about harmony though, and the, and the theory. I think. Ultimately, I mean, I don't. Ultimately, you you want to have it and then completely forget about it. Maybe like an actor with technique. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, I don't think Meryl Streep is thinking. Well, what is my motivation in the scene, or how can I? I think it's you're you're you you study, you're informed, you have an understanding of the process, and then, uh, and then hopefully you just forget about it. Because yeah. I'm not usually sitting there thinking like, well, gosh, if I, how do I go to the subdominant here, mm-hmm. or or have I. Have I used a, have I used a, a flat five in the past four measures? I, I don't. I that none of that comes up, but it's
0: but it just kind of it just kind of soaked. I just kind of soaked it up. I mm. think. But is there any any formal planning in the way that you approach a, a song a composition? Sure, I do like to have um,
1: you know particularly if it's a score that has light motifs, or for those who are not so musically inclined, you know musical. Um, Gestures that predominate or that can that appear in multiple areas of a score. So if it's something like that, uh, I wrote a musical called Far from Heaven that has a lot of um, themes, I guess you could say, that musical themes that that are woven through. So I guess I'm conscious of that. Usually, I get conscious of it kind of midway through, <laughs> and I think like, oh well, I have a bunch of themes that could be recycled and mm. not recycled, but repurposed throughout mm. the piece to give it some. Fabric, some some texture. I mean, I think that the audience, you know, uh, Sondheim all often talks about the ability of, of of the brain to to organize the way it perceives sound and and musical language. And I think that uh, structure and rhyme and uh, certain signal posts can help an audience, even if they're not musically schooled. You can give them. A bit of a roadmap, and so, or at least some speed bumps, or like you're you're veering off the road here. I'm going to get you back, or I'm going to give you a flag that will remind you that we're still on the highway. Mm-hmm. I think that you can do things like that, and because you 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 want to connect with them, but you also don't want to uh, just vomit out a, an, an unplanned miasma of sound and text. Mm-hmm. I think
0: that's very difficult for anyone to process. It's difficult for me to process. Mm-hmm. Do you worry that there's n- not enough harmonic sophistication in what an, a Broadway audience might be uh, hearing at, at the moment. Are we going in a particular direction? Is it just a, a quirk of history in terms of what, what's out there?
1: You know, it's uh, I don't like to be one of those people who bemoans being born at the wrong time. <laughs> Although I'm not nearly as old as Mozart, David Charles. <laughs> but... Um, Yes, I mean, I. It's simultaneously an inauspicious time for musicals and audiences. But then, when I say that, it's also there's some really good stuff happening now too. But, you know, in the in the post-war, in the in the pre-war and post-war, you know, Kurt Weill to 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 Bernstein years, when American popular music and theater music and classical music were all very close together in terms of bandwidth and spectrum, and there was a lot of cross-pollinating between the three. And there would be Broadway songs that would be on the radio, and, and popular standards, and there would be, you know, Minotti would have an opera running on Broadway. That history and that practice is very hard to find now. You'll get short, sure, they did Bohem, the Boslerman Bohem on Broadway. Sure, there are still examples of it, but But it's less in the collective consciousness, I think, of the audience. I also wonder about uh, vocal production. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm working on a new musical now, uh, and Patti LuPone is going to be it. And of course she has one of those great, I mean, she's got a liquid soprano as well, but she also has that, as anybody who's heard Evita or Gypsy or anything goes, that marvelous belt Mm -hmm. sound. but I also love writing in a kind of more legit soprano style, mm-hmm. and that particular sound. I wonder if particularly some young audiences are not nuanced in their exposure mm-hmm. to that tessitura, mm-hmm. to that you know, not 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 Turandot soprano, but mm-hmm. but anything that is that is of a slightly higher register, and so I worry a little bit about that. That the audience's ability. To think, well, if they can't it's so foreign to them that it's not intriguing for. Mm. Them. It's like, well, what is this? Mm. Cuz they're used to hearing uh, you know, a more tory Amosy or a more uh, singer-songwritery less less produced kind of
0: sound. Do you find it hard to cast shows these days? Do you find it more hard that voices, I don't. Right?
1: You know, people are uh, in the, uh, here and and in the states are seem exceptionally well trained. And you can, when people come in and audition, they I usually ask for two different uh, contrasting pieces, maybe a legit piece and then maybe a popular piece. And uh, people seem to have a, I think the level of training is very is very high. Uh, that said, there are there are also a lot of demands being made on young performers that I feel kind of a little bit are like elephants in the circus i mean people are asked to, to sing very high very loud very long and without a break uh, and that's very much in vogue these days i don't like to do that i don't think it's very actor friendly i also think that it's like tabasco sauce on an omelet you know you want it as an accent if you have it smeared over the entire egg dish then you get tired of it
0: mm. well i was listening to um to uh, a number from far from heaven just now and the uh, the, the revelation uh, when the, the husband is sort of discovered uh, s- suddenly the, 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 the female character is, is singing in, in a register you haven't heard before and it has a very specific effect mm-hmm. which uh, combined with the the kind of suddenly very destabilizing very um, center jostling harmony makes for a won- wonderful effect
1: you a lot about uh, character and about psychology and about the drama going on. I mean, you know, that said, uh, there are pieces that are written in a pop vernacular, even though they're in a period setting, and mm-hmm. those can work wonderfully well. Uh, although in some ways I'm always amazed because invariably, well not invariably, they're often done with with period dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everything is period uh, except the music. Mm-hmm. And then, so in a way sometimes it seems very fresh you know maybe something like Hamilton and then in other times maybe it seems like well you would never do that in a film I mean Mm. if you did if you were doing you know Jefferson in Paris you wouldn't have you you, they'd be in full they'd be in full costume and you'd be trying to evoke a period that wouldn't Mm. be talking in slang or yes
0: off off topic uh, one might say but um we were talking about it on the way up to uh to the room to record here we just heard about the news of the the passing of radical French composer conductor Pierre Boulez um and I wasn't aware that you'd had personal contact you would you uh, yes it's you a very
1: strange and slightly random confluence uh uh Uh, After George Zell died, he was the conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra, a wonderful uh, Germanic, spectacular uh, uh, conductor. The the orchestra went through a kind of transitional period, and before they chose uh, a new music director in the 70s, uh, Pierre Boulez was the principal guest conductor. And uh, at that time, uh, my father was on the board of directors of the Cleveland Orchestra, and uh, the only place for visiting artists to stay was the terrible Howard Johnson's at University Circle in Cleveland, which was a <laughs> ghastly, foul motel. And so we started uh, housing some visiting artists uh, at our at our house. And so uh, I'm an only child, and so I didn't have siblings, so we had an extra room. And, um, you know, it was Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi and Philippe Entremont and and Pierre Boulez. So I was never quite sure who would be across the hall, except then for a time, uh, it was Boulez all the time, and th- he was spending a lot more time in Cleveland. So in 69, 70, 71, he would be there m- months at a time. And, uh, so it was rather extraordinary, uh, as a six and seven-year-old having this incredibly, uh, ferociously brilliant, intimidating, but well, w- wonderful, uh, Frenchman, uh, in the house. And, uh, I was saying, you know, uh, it was right at the time when every young, you know, uh, child pianist wants to dive into a hardcore romantic repertoire like Chopin and, and Rachmaninoff. But I, I at least had the presence of mind to know that that would drive Pierre Boulez insane if I was practicing that at home. And I, I, so I only, I made sure to only play Bach and Haydn when he was in the house. <laughs> that was, I felt that was the least I could do. He was, he was very encouraging. I, I did give a. I, I had a go at some twelve tone uh, serial compositions uh, as a as a obnoxiously precocious little boy. One was called Plexiglass Catacombs, uh, and uh, he was very uh, encouraging. I I I don't I don't know if he would have what he would have made of of, of, of the, my more Broadway <laughs> over but but at the time he was uh, he was wonderfully kind about it. I was I was sad to hear of his passing today. He. Uh, I would see him uh, now and again when he would come and conduct uh, uh, some wonderful concerts in New York with the Vienna Philharmonic. I remember in particular, uh, yeah, a, a fascinating man. He would, he would, though he would write these inscr. He had the most tiny handwriting I've ever seen in a human being. These, he would write these. In, it was inscrutable, and he would write these little notes, and you'd have to have magnifying glasses and blow them up. And what it was was, please iron this shirt, but you couldn't. It was like. What? What? It was like the tiniest, the tiniest, like a, like a dwarf had written it.
0: Oh, well, he, he take, he took, a, well, he, on his own admission, taking a day to, to write a, a page of score, um, lining everything up. So most fastidious man it's, it's very sad, but, uh, he, he leaves an incredible legacy. Um, so Yale University. Yes, a
1: very good place to go. Uh, and particularly when I was there, there there were, there's the, I was an undergraduate, which is uh, a, a wonderful department, and I majored in music, and I got to, uh, but I got to conduct some shows, and write some shows, and do some recitals, and also there's a wonderful school of drama there that Meryl Streep went to, and Christopher Durang, and Wendy Wasserstein, some wonderful playwrights and actors, so there was a great, it was a great kind of theater and music place to be, and uh, lots of... Uh, you know, uh, uh, lots of Broadway actors and directors happened to be there, and classmates of mine. I didn't, I didn't really know that I'd end up working with the same people. But uh, uh, wonderful uh, Victoria Clark, uh, Tony winner for uh, Piazza, and Michael Cerverus was there when I was there, and the wonderful conductor Ted Sperling was there when I was there, and uh, we were all very, very friendly. Although I remember it being very competitive, mm-hmm. and we took it all deadly seriously. It was ma- maybe more serious than anything I've ever encountered in New York. <laughs> As, as only an 18 year old could be serious about you know was was that was that production of guys and dolls you know were you did you get that cue right or was was the tempo slightly under was, that became life and death
0: that must be very thrilling then
1: those were those were happy happy years good good years and you met uh, Doug Wright tell me about that I did uh, Doug Wright who's a wonderful playwright uh, Uh, Pulitzer Prize and Tony winner for the wonderful play I Am My Own Wife and he uh, wrote the libretto for Grey Gardens as well as for uh, a wonderful musical called Hands on a Hard Body and The Little Mermaid. Uh, Yes we went to university together so I've known him forever. Uh, I first tried to get him uh, many 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 years ago after we graduated to write a musical version of the of the terrible Uh, American uh, television show called Gilligan's Island. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought, you know, maybe there was something along the lines of Little Shop of Horrors. I was trying to do a kind of frothy entertainment, and there was a man named Sherwood Schwartz. He invented Gilligan's Island, as well as the Brady Bunch. Wow. Uh, And so I rang up Sherwood Schwartz, and I said, I've got this idea. Doug and I want to turn Gilligan's Island into a musical. And we went to California on our own, and we wrote... Some material on a speculative basis and we presented it to him and he said well you boys seem very nice and uh, that's all very well and good he said but what i think that the castaways on gilligan's island should be the only people left on earth as the result of a nuclear winter and they are the only survivors on the planet and they are left to propagate the species now this was pretty far off from my little shop of horror, <laughs> popular entertainment notion, so we did not have a meeting of the minds. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, So I, when, when I had the idea about Great Gardens, Doug was you know, first on my list and I approached him and I knew that he would probably love the documentary film on which the musical is adapted. From and he did uh, so much so that he declined to write the book uh, (laughs) because he thought, well, you know, the film is perfect and those women actually lived, and there's nothing more real than documentary. And uh, thank you and goodbye. But I, uh, Michael, and I managed to uh, get him to keep agreeing to meet with us. So we would get together every month or so for coffee and we'd watch parts of the film and say, well, what about this or what about that? And he'd say, well, yes, maybe, but I don't want to do it. It's a mistake. And uh, it was not until uh, we had this notion of, um, for those people who don't know, it's, uh, Great Gardens It tells the story of an eccentric aunt and cousin of Jacqueline Kennedy uh, who lived in a mansion in the shore of Long Island in a town called East Hampton and the house is called Grey Gardens. The mother's name is Edith and the daughter's name is Edie and in common parlance they are Big Edie and Little Edie. Uh, They were wealthy, beautiful, uh, educated aristocrats who fell on very, very hard times and became exceptionally eccentric. And you would say in uh, contemporary language, a codependent relationship, a mother and daughter constantly fighting and uh, rehashing the past, looking for clues and and blame and recriminations. And uh, the wonderful thing about the film, one of the many things, is that uh, you see oil portraiture and photography of the women from the 1930s and 40s and you see them when they were both young and beautiful. And then the camera pulls back and you see that these pictures and paintings are now in this incredibly decrepit, condemned, slovenly hovel mm-hmm. overrun with animals and garbage and, and filth. And uh, Little Edie says, uh, she says in the film, she says, it's awfully difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Mm. She says it in this kind of lockjaw, mid-Atlantic accent. Awfully difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Awfully difficult. And you see in that shot the past and the present together. And so Michael and I had this idea that perhaps we could create a first act that took place in the 1940s where you would see the mother and daughter and the house in the heyday. And the daughter, little Edie... uh, dated uh joseph patrick kennedy who was the elder brother of john kennedy and he was killed in world war ii so this is just before uh but he was uh there was there was the suggestion that they were engaged to be married that remains a little bit perhaps Mm -hmm. some some authorial invention Mm -hmm. on our part but we thought if you saw perhaps what the house was like saw what they had saw and yet not just saw the affluence and the privilege, but also started to see the seeds of the dysfunctional, competitive, loving, also jealous and complicated mother-daughter dynamic. If you saw it early, then, you know, a lot happens at intermission at Grey Gardens. Mm-hmm. We have the Kennedy assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, the country changes, and then we meet them again uh, 30 years later in the 70s uh, and when the house was... It, it came to the attention of the authorities. It was condemned by the Board of Health. It was so filthy and overrun that they condemned it. And it became a scandal for Jackie, who at that point was married to Aristotle Onassis. She was the mm-hmm. most famous woman in the world. And all of the tabloids screamed, Jackie's kin living in filth and squalor. And everybody, they became an embarrassment for her, but also a kind of voyeuristic thrill for America <laughs> that even though... Jackie had all this privilege and Mm. fame. Even she had relatives, as we all do, that are uh, perhaps a little eccentric or perhaps uh, not as one would
0: imagine. And whilst you were courting Doug Wright, um, uh, were you having musical responses, or did you manage to kind of keep them in check until you knew you had a... They say you're.
1: They, uh, I did have the rights at this point, so I had approached uh, Albert Mazel's, who was the uh, surviving documentarian who made the film, and uh, I said I'd like to turn Great Gardens into a musical, and uh, he agreed to it. So I had I had the rights. They say you're never supposed to start writing until you at least have the rights, because the history is is, is littered with examples of. You, you start to get, you fall in love with the project only to be denied down mm. the road. Mm. So uh, I knew we could start a little there. In the film, both women love American popular music and they have phonographs that are constantly playing. The mother is a soprano and she sings along with recordings. T for Two yeah. is a particular favorite. Uh, you and the Night in the Music. Uh, so T for Two, I knew there would be a T for two-like number in the yes. show. So uh, Michael and I devised a kind of homage to T for two called Two Peas in a Pod, yes. uh, which I also thought could function, obviously, as mother and a daughter and mm-hmm. how similar they are and dissimilar they are at the same time. So that was the first thing we embarked on. And we did start
0: that perhaps maybe before Doug had, <laughs> Doug had fully, fully agreed. So scrolling forward to your... You have the... You have the rights. You have the collaborators. Um, was it a satisfying writing process?
1: It was thrilling in a way. Uh, the the first act, uh, I loved the idea, and Doug did too, of of maybe trying to write something like high society or the royal family, or Phil, as if it's a Philip Barry, as if it's a drawing room comedy of the era. And maybe that's what how Edie imagined it, or maybe that's really how it was. And then in the second act. Uh, when things are so different for them that it would, the second half's almost like a Beckett play with music. I mean, it's very free-associative. It's not narrative-driven. It's not plot-driven. And so they go off on these very fanciful, uh, non-linear episodes, and I loved the freedom of that. There's a wonderful song in the second half called Jerry Likes My Corn. I think it's probably the only song written about corn. uh and and it's uh, you know it's it's the mother at this point is is making corn on a hot plate by her bed which is filthy and but she still carries herself as if she's dining elegantly with fine china and silver and servants and i just loved uh i just loved the juxtaposition of that and that there's a, a young boy who appears in the second act to try to help the women clean up the house and that how the mother uses the kid as a fulcrum to needle the daughter and mm. and say Jerry likes my corn. Why, why don't you? You know he's perfect. Why aren't you perfect? In that way that you can kind of play people against each other. <laughs> but that's a. I love I love Michael's uh, metaphorical r- rather than have a song that that's, that's bald and says um, I like you. You're my surrogate son. I prefer you to my daughter. Mm. Uh, you know. Th- that's what it's saying, but it's called "Jerry Likes My Corn," mm. and I think that's so much more interesting. And the audience totally gets it without being spoon fed. Is probably a bad dining,
0: <laughs> dining, <laughs> dining metaphor. And do you find these moments, these sort of light bulb moments, in terms of uh, an idea for a song? Do you is that something you find together? Does it come from one more or the other? You shared around. I think
1: we both sniff around, and usually, who has the best idea wins. Uh, Early on in our collaboration I almost always we would we would identify a moment and then usually Michael would go off and write a lyric first Uh, That's always the question people ask about about composers and lyricists. What comes first and uh, So that's usually the way we used to work, but now often uh, and in far from heaven in particular Michael was busy with another project and I was very anxious to get started Mm so you know if you're adapting a play or a movie uh, or a book, you have the story in place, and you have at least some notion of what it's going to be. So I started to write sketches and musical the thoughts and 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 moments that I thought could musicalize. And there are things called dummy lyrics. You know, I love you because you're orange. It's not going to be that, but that's that's what it's that's the number of syllables it needs. So I would find. I would, I would just have a sense of what music could be, and I would find these moments and just start to maybe sketch things out. Mm-hmm. So we go, but bo- we go both ways, I sure. guess, is the answer. Do you ever have lyric hooks that you 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 need to suppress? Sometimes he doesn't like me to tell him what my dummy lyric is because it'll either be almost right, in which case it's like <laughs> it's too it's too close to dismiss. It's almost right, and so that makes it worse. But it's not quite right. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm amazed, you know, Elizabeth Swatos just died too. She, she um, an American, uh, 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 she was a triple threat, a composer, lyricist, and librettist. Wow. Uh, it's unusual to find people who do all three. Uh, sometimes it's good to have the free song collaboration. Sometimes it's good to have someone to say, you're crazy, that's a terrible idea, or that could be better, or that's perfect, or that needs to go back to the drawing board. But... Uh, yeah, the people who... I love language, but I think being a good lyricist is the hardest thing in the world. And, uh, I mean, it, I guess if you put a gun to my head, maybe it would take... I, I, I could come up with something. But, but uh, I have that uh, great, great admiration for lyricists and for composer
0: lyricists who can do, who can do both. So, Grey Gardens gets its first performance 2006 off-Broadway um, and then Broadway 2007... Uh,
1: Broadway the same
0: year The oh, same year Yes uh, We opened uh, We we
1: finished writing the show We developed it at the Sundance Institute People know of, they have a very famous uh, film festival uh, Robert Redford Sundance But he's, there's also a theater division And they very graciously gave us a home to develop it there We had our two wonderful actresses Christine Ebersole as Little Edie uh, In Act 2 and Big Edie in Act 1 And then Mary Louise Wilson The veteran actress in Act 2 She plays uh, Big Edie And uh, so we had them, so we got to kind of uh, bespoke tailor much mm-hmm. of the second act on them, which was mm-hmm. a thrill. And also, you know, sometimes I've written things and you don't get to hear it for months and months at a time. We would, I would go off to, we went off to our cabins and we would write and then hand it to them the next day. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Playwrights Horizons, which is a wonderful uh, off-Broadway theater, I guess kind of like the Donmar here, like the Almeida, mm-hmm. uh, that's a subsidized institutional theater with a subscriber audience, and they commissioned us to write it and uh, provided us a developmental home, which was great. And it it opened uh, to kind of some mixed reviews, uh, although great reviews for the actors. And so, you know, in the old days, you would get to do an out-of-town triad in a city like Philadelphia or New Haven or Boston. Things are so expensive now in musicals. Or here, maybe like a Sheffield or Chichester. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You would get to do uh, work the kinks out out of town before yeah. before the money gets prohibited. Mm-hmm. But now the money in the states is so prohibitive that it's very difficult to to get something done out of town. So we were kind of we were kind of showing our laundry in front of a paying mm-hmm. audience in New York maybe a little too soon. And so what was wonderful was we had these producers that came along and they decided to transfer it. But they said we want to give you the opportunity to rewrite and revisit some moments, which we were thrilled to have and. You know, uh, they say that if you go to a performance and an audience doesn't like a moment, uh, that may be a quirk of the audience. If, if five audiences in a row don't like that moment, you know, you, you, you would do well to listen because obviously you're not connecting with them or they're not getting something. So uh, it, that's what's great. They're, they're, you, you think you know what you're doing and you, one mostly does, but there are certain things you can never really know until you experience it in front of an audience. So we got to rewrite and then we reopened on Broadway uh, in the fall of two thousand six, very very ecstatic uh, uh, reviews and audience response and uh, fantastic. And but then you know, I I always wanted it to uh, play London. That was always a huge plan, dream, fantasy of mine. I love it here. I love working here. I love being here. Uh, and I couldn't get arrested here. <laughs> I went around everywhere. I went to the I went to the National, I went to the Old Vic, I went to the Young Vic, I went to the Almeida, I went to uh, private, you know, independent producers, uh, everyone said, well, it's a wonderful show, but no one here knows the documentary film on which it's based, so it's going to be tough going, and they're eccentric, and I said, well, you know, Certainly the notion of aristocrats living in moldering country houses running out of money is not foreign to to a UK sensibility. My God, that's the story of the aristocracy here as well uh, in marvelous estates that they can no mm-hmm. longer afford to live in. Uh, but more than that, even though in some ways the story is very American, what I've found, there's a wonderful production in Tokyo, there's a wonderful production in Rio recently, uh, the the mother-daughter dynamic seems to resonate mm. beyond national considerations and beyond cultural considerations people there's some i guess any parent child but particularly mother-daughter it's just very very complicated and very specific that mixture of 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 support and and love but also of a ferocious uh competition and and jealousy and uh uh, happily, uh, uh, nine years later, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we, there's a just a spectacular production happening at Suddick. I hope people get a chance to see it. Uh, Tom Sutherland, who did a marvelous Titanic and a marvelous Grand Hotel in the same space, uh, uh, approached us and he had a very singular vision uh, for it. The production is very different than New York and equally thrilling and in different ways. And, uh, Cast is superb. Jenna Russell, who's an Olivier winner for *Sunday in the Park with George*, uh, plays the the mother in the first act and the daughter in the second act. And then in the second act, Sheila Hancock plays Jenna's mum. And those two ladies, uh, all, Sheila also, of course, an Olivier winner and a film and television star and a very. I read an interview with her recently. She does not like to be called a national treasure, <laughs> so I said that to her when I, I said, "I'm not calling you that." But she's 82 and ferociously spry and ferociously intelligent, and they are a formidable pairing, the two of them. It's a thrilling, uh, it's a thrilling double act to watch them go at it. And they, the the ugly stuff is truly ugly, and mm. the beautiful stuff is truly beautiful. And so it's it's, and I think audiences, it's it's wonderful to to watch British audiences see the show. You you can tell there are pockets of people who who know the film, and then there's people who don't mm. uh, and it has to work for both constituencies and so i hope that it does well,
0: i'm going to try and get this podcast out before um well as, as, soon, as soon as i can but i i suspect there's no point in saying get your tickets now because it's selling very well isn't it I It think.
1: certainly is uh although yes uh, but uh, get your tickets get your tickets <laughs> while you can the, danielle torrento the producer would not want me to say otherwise maybe there are
0: returns <laughs> maybe there returns. are returns yes get to see
1: this show. You could claim to be a relative of Sheila Hancock <laughs> so you're long lost long lost daughter.
0: So I had already mentioned uh, the show where I, I met you uh, which had a very different genesis. A show called Neverland which was produced by Harvey Weinstein um, uh, and produced at the Leicester Curve. Um, I know this was a very different uh, experience. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about Sure, about Neverland. uh, Finding Neverland's a, a, a wonderful
1: film starring Johnny Depp and Kate Winslet about J.M. Barrie the, the playwright who wrote Peter Pan and other stories and his relationship with the widow Syl- Sylvia Llewellyn Davis and her boys uh, it's based on a play that Alan Knee wrote called uh, The Man Who Was Peter Pan and uh, after Grey Gardens uh, premiered in New York, uh, uh, Harvey uh, asked us to uh, write a stage adaptation of the film. It's a very beautiful film uh, about uh, loss and uh, and growing up and fantasy and the ability for uh, uh, a playwright who's stuck maybe to uh, find his way through a dark time through imagination and through writing. So I loved all of those themes and uh, we worked on it for a long time. Uh, and we did a production uh, at Leicester Curve with uh, wonderful uh, Julian Aubenden as Barry and uh, Rosie Craig as, uh, as Sylvia, and a marvelous cast directed by Rob Ashford. And, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier about out-of-town triads, there are always things to learn. And, <laughs> you know, uh, the genesis of musicals, it's, it's, it's a collaborative idiom and it's always hard to get all the ingredients right. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, after Leicester, um, you know, Harvey uh, decided that he really uh, wanted to take the show in a different direction, and so we all parted company, sadly, after many, many, many years uh, together, five, five, six years of, of working on it. Uh, I'm very proud of that score. Uh, I hope one day, in some way, it will either show up somewhere else or see the light of day or, or be repurposed into a new piece. But uh, And I loved working, as I say, uh, with David Charles and the, and those musicians uh, at the, uh, you know... So, so I'm. Uh, that was a. That was my last uh, foray in, in in UK theater. So it's. So it, that was bittersweet. So I'm happy to be back, perhaps uh, in more this, auspiciously <laughs> this this in time the sweet around.
0: Mm. Well, I, I I remember it was a very beautiful score. Um, there's a song called "Lost Boys," which I still find very haunting in my head. Thank you. I must uh, I must find a. I don't know if you if there is any archive footage, um, but. Uh, I mean, I think my observations, and uh, I know it's sort of problematic now that the show has been um, sort of reclaimed by Mr. Weinstein and, and with a new score by Gary Barlow, um, but I remember almost literally it felt like the, the clash of two different ideas with when, <laughs> when a pirate ship and a sail or, or very metaphorically appeared at the end of Act One. Um, it felt like uh, there were different directions
1: yes you know it uh, it was a very expensive and visually spectacular production and uh, you know when you when you when there are a lot of cooks uh, people have different visions and sometimes getting everybody on the same page as to is it an adult show is it a child show is it a romance is it a family show is it a date show is it a hen party show (laughs) is it so uh you know those kind of things uh uh there there there's often a difference of, of opinion uh so it's hard to get a cohesive uh a cohesive vision but uh yes I certainly wish them well uh, with it uh its it's uh started off doing doing very well on uh in new york and uh, still still running
0: well on to happy things richard Greenberg. Yes. came to see Grey Gardens, so we're sort of doing it. We're vaulting over Neverland now. Yes, quite, quite uh, all right. <laughs> um, tell me about that. Uh, Richard Greenberg
1: is a marvelous American playwright. Uh, he has a play r- running now in London, uh, an older play called The Dazzle. Uh, he wrote uh, Three Days from Rain. He uh, is a fantastic, uh, brilliant man. And he I've known him socially many years. He came to the very very last performance of great gardens on broadway i was standing in front of the theater feeling a little bit sorry for myself because it was closing after uh, nine or months or so and uh and i said to him i said you know do you ever think about maybe do you might i ever interest you in writing a musical and uh he said well let's get together and talk about it so we uh, got together and uh we both brought in some lists of possible subjects some original ideas some adaptations and uh and he, on his list was uh, a Todd Haynes movie from 2002 called Far From Heaven. And I said, stop, that's, that's, that's it for me. And uh, it's a film uh, about, uh, it takes place in the 1950s in, in suburban Connecticut about uh, a seemingly perfect uh, Eisenhower era a family, a a beautiful young wife and her handsome husband and their two seemingly perfect children. And we find out through the course of the... It really is almost an American tragedy in a way. We find out through the course of the evening that all is not as it appears to be. And uh, the husband turns out to be gay and is discovered by the wife. And the only person who truly understands her is the African-American gardener and in a very uh, p- racist and prejudiced Hartford Connecticut society that becomes uh too much for anyone to bear but that so it's a it's a sad piece but it's also I hope in some ways hope uh there's a hopefulness at the end that maybe she becomes a more authentic version of herself than a hermetically sealed formica Tupperware hmm. uh that's the I I do like uh, and the the film uh, it's a wonderful film with Julianne Moore and uh, Dennis Quaid and Dennis H- uh, Haysbert as well. Uh, it's an homage to Douglas Sirk movies. Uh, he they were called derisively in the fifties uh, women's pictures because they dealt with uh, things like racism mm. and things like the role of women in society mm. and those. Are, uh, they had wonderful titles like Imitation of Life or Written on the Wind or uh, the one that this one is modeled after called All That Heaven Allows. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I approached Todd and uh, flew to Portland, Oregon, where he lives, and uh, over some cocktails and a delicious seafood dinner, I managed to be persuasive in letting him trust uh, us to, uh, to adapt it. Uh, and that... Uh, also premiered at Playwrights Horizons. They've been very, very uh, kind and generous and is a wonderful theater to develop new musicals. And uh, that, we did it first at the Williamstown Theater Festival in 2012 and then it premiered in New York at Playwrights in 2013. Uh, and it's now, uh, with the wonderful, uh, now Tony Award winning Kelly O'Hara in the lead and uh, I always uh, envisioned her playing that role. It's wonderful when you have someone in mind mm. and then, and then you get to go to their house and play it for them and hope that they say yes. <laughs> Although it's awfully daunting to be singing, you know, I have, I have some composers have a very good voice. I have a very enthusiastic <laughs> nasal voice, but it's not good. So when I'm actually selling my material, I may not be doing it much justice, but she was able to see through it. Uh, there's a, They're going to do a production of it. Uh, they do it around the country now, and I'm hoping uh, maybe if Grey Gardens goes well here, we'll see a, a UK production. I would love that
0: uh that would be wonderful I mean, you, you can see various clips on YouTube and uh, there's a wonderful uh, original Broadway cast recording yes I, I adore the recording mm, mm, there's a wonderful
1: record producer who has more Grammy awards than he, he knows where to put them in his house named Steve Epstein and he produced both the Grey Gardens recording and the Far From Heaven recording I'm very lucky to have him and orchestrations by Bruce Coughlin which are... yes he's a brilliant guy too mm. he likes it here too Hire us here in the UK. We love it here. (laughs) I don't want to say we'll work for nothing. We'll work for a little.
0: Jerry doesn't fight like two fish wives. Sherry likes relaxing. Me too. Now and then we play my 45s. Hear the old sad sax sing. No picnic growing older. Abandoned and forlorn. Stuck in bed Stiff with gout, alcoholic drinks are out You'll die, the doctor's warned. <laughs> then quick as a wink I'm in the pink Cos Jerry likes my coat do if you have a particular perspective on this but how do you see your writing having progressed from through that period that sort of um nearly 10 year period I guess from Grey Gardens to to Far From Heaven do you sort of see an evolution there do you see it simply as two different pieces with different responses
1: it's an interesting question I uh, particularly sitting there at, at Southwark last evening you know you it's like you, you get a chance to look back at a younger version of yourself mm-hmm. and and not just in a still photograph but actually it's like oh you you wrote that, and why did you make those decisions bar to bar or moment to moment and uh uh I think maybe i have a i have a better sense of overall architecture now than i than I did uh then, although I'm certainly very proud of that great garden score uh and i think it's it's beautifully performed at Southwark but um uh, yeah, you know, I hope I'm not getting worse, Tim. <laughs>
0: 'Cause Certainly that's not. always that's always the
1: danger if you're going the completely wrong direction that would be that would be horrible. Then, then 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 I wouldn't be like Mozart, I'd be like Mozart's un, un untalented, you know, uh, half brother,
0: Steve. <laughs> Steve. Steve. Steve, Steve, Steve Amadeus. So, Scott, tell me about your latest project Warpaint
1: i 'm very excited about it. War Paint is a musical uh, about the rivalry between two cosmetics uh, industry titans, Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden. They were both uh, female executives that uh, headed companies that bore their names at a time when women uh, were not in such positions they uh, the musical, we they lived from the late 1800s into the 1960s. Uh, Rubenstein died in her early 90s, and Arden was in her late 80s. We concentrate on the period in the 1930s through the 1960s. And I'm leaving out the most important part, which is that they despised each other, and they were fierce, fierce rivals. The story, the historical record alleges that they never met, even though they had neighboring salons in New York on Fifth Avenue and off Fifth Avenue for all of those years. They had two very different constituencies, and they both wanted to stake a claim to a standard of beauty. Arden was Canadian, but reinvented herself as a kind of patrician, horsey, uh, preppy, uh, aristocrat, Queen Elizabeth was a was an ardent customer, mm. and Rubinstein uh, was a Polish Jew who refashioned herself as an exotic, and in some ways that was a code word for Jewish. But her clientele she she was a, she collected modern art. She was more uh, unconventional and loved. Uh, she had ex- exquisite packaging, beautiful Egyptoid compacts mm. and and such, and. Uh, so they, they, there were these two kind of competing stakes of, uh, for, for, for worldwide womanhood, what it meant to present one's face and to be beautiful. And uh, at one point, uh, Rubenstein was the richest woman in the world. Which was extraordinary, and she sold her company to Lehman Brothers the uh, stock market to house uh, right before the market crash in nineteen twenty nine very auspiciously and then became rather bored a few years later and bought it back for pennies on the dollar <laughs> she had salons all around the world as did uh, Arden and uh, you know in the early part of the century kind of pre suffragette uh, makeup uh, face paint war paint as we're calling it uh, uh, was really mostly for actresses and prostitutes. And ladies in polite society at that point were not typically making a part of their daily regimen. And these two women saw the kind of inculcation of makeup into popular culture. And mm-hmm. I think the part that resonates for me today is the whole notion of you have to have the latest elixir cream, re- all these made up words, regenerist, mm-hmm. oxygenated, <laughs> these poultices and creams, Otherwise, you're not going to stay young. You're not going. You're going to age. You're going to die alone, and you're not going to get a man. <laughs> That's the kind of promise, and all of that. And they, they were brilliant marketing whizzes and brilliant advertisers. And so I love that we explore in the piece a bit about. Uh, They both gave simultaneously gave women a way to feel good about themselves and also suggested that women needed to feel better about themselves and kind of hooked them Mm. a little bit like a pusher on these lipsticks and rouges and pencils and powders. And then this whole idea today, you know, there are still some women who will not go out without makeup on. What does that mean? You can't be seen. Or some... Some there, some some. You know, there are always these famous stories of their, their husbands have never seen them without makeup. They go to bed with full makeup on, and then they kind of disappear in the middle of the night to wash it off, or maybe then they get up an hour early so that the husband never sees them. I mean, what does all of that mean? And uh, so uh, uh, there's a, a nonfiction book called War Paint that by, by, by joint biography of the two women, and then there's a documentary film with a much. Uh, um, um, Less auspicious title called "The Powder and the Glory," uh, <laughs> that also chronicles their their rivalry and competition. And uh, we've fortunate; it's the it's the all star cast of of all time. And Patty Lupone is playing Rubenstein, and Christine Ebersole is playing Lisbeth Arden, and so they're both very 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 well cast, and both the two time Tony Award winners and uh, and. Uh, so we are going to do it at a wonderful theater in Chicago called The Goodman. Uh, and we start rehearsals in May. And then hopefully into New York uh, uh, after that. But I'm, uh, So it's Doug uh, Wright, again, my Grey Gardens compadres, uh, writing the libretto. And Michael Corey writing the lyrics. And Michael Greif directing. So it's our Grey Gardens team reunited. Wonderful. Uh, they don't... Uh, I think at the end, they they certainly, without giving it away, they do not become the best of friends and (laughs) embrace, and it's it's much more adult than that. But they, I think, kind of have a grudging detente and maybe recognize that only your nearest and best rival understands the rarefied air that you yourself breathe and also understands the incredible struggles of Mm. being a woman in a man's world at Mm. that time. And also... Maybe inspires you to be greater and pushes you the the imagined threat of the other pushes you to be mm. to excel and innovate even more it's there amazing. are also pretty girlies in this one it's a big <laughs> it's a big it's a big cast and yeah. there it's it's so it's a both a kind of psychological portrait of the two of them but also again because we cr- cover so much time there's great uh, there, there are numbers there yeah. are numbers in this one they're da- dancing this. in numbers. Wow
0: have you contrived a way for them to meet?
1: Yes, Doug's been very inventive. Uh, again, without giving too much away, there there may be ways that, that they uh, sing simultaneously in different locales. So we yeah. get the thrill of the, yes. th- these two uh, titanic uh, musical theater performers or in raising voice together uh, without them actually being conscious of doing it. Yeah. And uh, maybe some similar uh, moments in book scenes where they're maybe imagining mm. uh, what one one might say through a mirror to someone one detests
0: <laughs> i'm seeing stravinsky and Schoenberg the uh, yes in that, LA.
1: that wouldn't be so yes with thomas mann around the corner yes they all lived and been vile too i love that it po- the there, there's, there's a musical there too so yes. these these amazing european emigres living in beverly hills with the palm trees and yes. the swimming pools it's extraordinary
0: Well, i'm assuming that somebody must have approached um uh, Isherwood for no, it's not Isherwood Um, for for Tales from Hollywood, wrote Hampton, Christopher Hampton. Yeah, I mean, there may be an idea brewing here. But is there? There are, no, there are no females on the on the patch. and It seems that you're uh, that you're.
1: Well, I, 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 yes, I, yes, I was thinking that last night. I write beautifully for men as well. It's not, it's not just
0: the ladies. <laughs> speaking into the, speaking into the universe there. Yes, please. <laughs> Like Michael um, Ball, I'm writing you a musical. There you go. You heard it here first. It's on record. Um, just a couple of questions to round up. This has been an absolutely fascinating hour, and I, as, as ever I go over my, my time because there's so much to talk about. Um, is there a musical, it's a bit of a pop question, but is there a musical you wish you had written? Well, Sweeney is the greatest. I mean,
1: the storytelling, the humor, the invention... Gypsy's pretty damn good, too. Uh, there are a lot of good ones out there. I'm a big Michael John LaCusa fan, too. I think he's pretty mm. pretty brilliant. Yes. So it's not just dead people I like
0: <laughs> and, 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 and old people I like. I like younger younger writers, too. Well, um Scott Frankel, thank you so much uh, for this absolutely fascinating interview. Um thank you for taking time out of your schedule. Uh, press night is tomorrow for Grey Gardens, I believe. It is indeed. Um so all the very best uh, Try to get story. a ticket if you can. There you South go. Southwark
1: Playhouse till February
0: 6th. Yeah. I'll put I'll put links on the uh, on the podcast page, so you I learned how to say "Sovik." <laughs> uh, after a few Southwarks, uh, I, I I I got with the program. There's uh, there's all sorts of this this sort of schwa tendency that we have uh, with Edinburgh and Loughborough and Leicester and so on. It must uh, I know it prove, proves uh, proves a challenge, but so you you got it you got it down to it. I also know how to say "over the road." Okay, yeah. Do you want to go for a drink over the, Do you want to go over the road for a drink? There you go, absolutely to the manaborn. or or, or thereabouts (laughs) around the corner (laughs) Scott Frankel thanks so much this has been Voice of the Musical um, and I hope to see you again with a shorter gap between the next one I promise